Welcome to the Fish Tea Podcast, where we talk about LGBTQ politics, pop culture, growing up in the Caribbean, life in the diaspora, and the work it takes to sustain love, life, and laughter in the midst of all the white noise. I'm M. I'm Glenroy. And I'm Kareem. We're giving you everything, honey. Get into this mug. We're serving you a hot cup of fish tea. Bottoms up. Bottoms up. <laughs> hey. <laughs> 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 he broke my fire on a cancer, Kareem. My friend early in. The only thing left for Kareem, though, is getting a little baby ears them. I saw She have a little Spanish girl. Wait, get into the nail. Yeah, get into it. Get into the nail. Right. All I want for Christmas is you, and that's what it's given. Come through, come through, come through, come through. So let's start with you. How you been, bitch? The podcast says see you in a month. Yes, I said it. <laughs> yeah, the bi-weekly, the bi-weekly recording schedule really made me feel like when I gone, you're really gone because this whole month something. Anyways, I've been good. I've been. On the home stretch with this dissertation, I collected all my data, so I'm just writing it up so that we march and graduate in. You know, I'm coming after this. Bitch, just put that 10 points in a care. Um, and then other things, I've been applying to some jobs, um, trying to figure out where I really want to take that. I've been working on, um, working on like my personal, personal and professional brand and so on. So. Um, I have some exciting things that I'm working on that I'll be launching soon. So be on the lookout for all of those. All of the 50 million things from my hours of the glen right finally I come to fruition. Yes. We love to <laughs> but beyond see- that, you know, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> we love to see it. And Miss M, Miss Environment, how are you doing? <laughs> Girl, I've I've been I've been good. Um the semester is ending and so you know it's final projects time and I've I finally have my um dissertation proposal drafted. So one um one of my major professors is actually the the um the lecturer for the course that I did to draft the proposal and she was like M like <laughs> you have it you can submit this to your to your um steering committee now and then we can move forward from there. So I'm super excited about that. Um, so hopefully by next summer, I'll be able to start collecting data. Fingers crossed, my candidacy exam goes um, go well. Some of them are too far back at Kareem, so you can't call me anything, but just put doctor in front of that one good year or two. <laughs> right through. Right yeah. But outside of that, you know, I've just been... Um, I've gotten some opportunities to speak at um, conferences for LG, um, around LGBTQ topics and, and stuff like that. So I've just been on cloud nine, living the life, book, joked, touring and whoring, that kind of stuff. Love that. Put up on a t-shirt, book, joke, touring and whoring. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the, the podcast is going to be filled with Zorts. Uh, the stuff is nice. Oh, nice. So, me, I'm going to get two graduation seats. Come, man, come up to your graduation, girl. I don't know how much something I much we play get, but just squeeze me in. If you need to roll under the top, man, come in. You roll under the top, man, come in. But if it's a, if it's a virtual you graduation, man, you can't. What is that? If I virtual, my name can't wait. So, I'm here for that, just 
you know, hey, I just need. And I'm gonna give because you know I made a, I'm the first person to um to pursue all three degrees in the school that I'm in. So I did my bachelor's, master's, and now my doctorate within the same school. I'm the first to do that. So they better they better create the excitement about me. Oh, nice. Um, Bobby, all right. <laughs> um, work. Actually, no, I like. So work has been actually very good. Um, things have been progressing well. Uh, we've we've made some really good moves in like getting a permanent space for the office. So, uh, things are going well with that. Plans for next year are going well. As, you know, going in the direction I want them to go as well. The work plan almost finished, come together. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I can't, you know, when it gets around December time, things kind of slow down, but it's slowing down with most of the things accomplished the way I would like to see them accomplished. So I'm pleased with that, right? Last week, I did well at the gym. I actually go four out of the five days. I'm not my legs, I'm a problem as well. No, like the week before last, not last week. Last week, I only got two. But they understand because, you know, sometimes it's just happening. Like, only about to last week, where I could have a drop something. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm, things we really go almost once to go. I never, I never, I never feel, oh, I didn't feel overwhelmed in the last week. Um, but yeah. So I'm feeling good, my energy right, you know, gym never too bad today, and I'm still on my Facebook card. I can't really see, but my hands don't look nice, but my shoulder look a bit. I'm so, I'm so, I'm so. Yeah, you for the boot camp. Me come to see you back at your boot camp. Yeah, that's so. When I go to boot camp, that week at Renee, it's supposed to come to boot camp with me, you know. But boot camp cancels, so she get away. But my teller said, if she come to boot camp, I actually do the exercise, then me, I pay for it, and we will pay money. This is Renee Bootcamp, right? Right? So we shall see. Stay tuned for that update. So yeah, very excited about that. So, today, people, 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 right? Um, we're having, so of all the, the sub-series that we do on Fish Tea, and we do quite a lot. We do the women takeover. You know, we do the fish fetishes with Shade when she come in and tell about the sexual and so and so. Right, with the healthy, when Lando Lido talk about health issues. But this is my personal favorite sub-series that we do, the Legends Ball, right? Where we have the greats that walked so a girl like me can run around in heels and dresses and capes, right? So today, right, we have with us, and forgive me if I use your government name, and you're not been sure how you feel about it, but I saw Matthew Chin wrote it in his article ever since then. I feel like I need to call out the proper name because it's nice, <laughs> right? But welcome to the Fish Tea Podcast, the, the OG, right, godfather of the gays in Jamaica, Mr. Lawrence Chan, who, for all intents and purposes, kick-started the movement way back when in the 70s. We finally have him on the podcast. So welcome, 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 Larry Chang. Woo. Oh, thank you. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but first of all, let me um, congratulate you, Glenroy, on your um, promotion and into the position of ED. Um, I'm very pleased and proud oh, to know you. that um, you are now holding that position. It's great. <laughs> Natural yeah. thing, but I mean, I, so these days, whenever I do presentations on the work, I always have to bring up GFM or Gay Freedom Movement for those who don't know. And the work that we did uh, uh, back then, it's I mean, it's amazing to me 
that you know you were doing that work um, back in the seventies. And I think if what if I do nothing else in this job is remind people that it never start with J Flag. There, there was a, there were 20 years of work that went into it before we started. And also, let's be clear, Larry Chang had a hand in starting JFAG as well. So mm-hmm. even after JFM, he did come back to Jamaica and kickstart um, JFAG as well. So big up people on that as well, Larry. So, yeah. But <laughs> all inside, my first question is, um, what inspired you to start the freedom movement um, back then? Okay, to give you the little backstory, uh, I went to school, to college in California, and um, this was back in the sixties. I graduated seventy-one and came back to Jamaica. But while I was in college, I was. Um, very near to Berkeley, California, University of California. And that was the hotbed of um, activism and radicalism and all of that. And I happened to be there at the time of um, when the Black Power Movement really got off on its feet. Um, Huey Newton and the Black Panthers lived in Oakland, California, which is exactly where I was. Um, Then there was a women's movement, which um, kind of got its start there too, as well as um, the gay liberation movement. So three movements coming all together at one time. And I was in the midst of it. So I was radicalized, you could say, by um, exposure to all of that activity. So when I graduated and finished and came back to Jamaica, I made a decision that, you know, I was not going to live in the closet. I was going to live a life with integrity and um, who don't like it, lumpy. So when I came back, I realized, you know, what the situation was. I met a couple um, local people and, you know, Soon I learned the runnings about who is who and what is what and everything. So um, sometime after that, a couple of friends started uh, a gay bar on Haining Road, the corner of Haining Road and Altamont Road. Yeah. The last time I was in Jamaica, I took um, a JV and, and a couple others on a bus tour and showed them the site. I don't know if you were there. But, no, anyway. but I saw the video. You saw the video. Okay. So the name of that um, bar was The Closet. Very <laughs> appropriately named. And of course, I named it. Um, <laughs> and it was going on well. It was open to the public. It was right on the street. Anybody can walk in off the street. But come Friday night, Saturday night, then the place turn out and appear Batiman and um, Saddamite to up the place. But as you know, I mean, I chose to one. As you know, the Saddamite, them, they love the record fight. And yes, woman power, woman fight. And they used to broke buckle and go on with all them kind of something. 
And this was a regular thing. And police have become enough time because people couldn't take the, the, the wranglings. So anyway, the club was threatened to close because of all of this, um, this violence and um, upset. So then a, a few of us um, decide that no, we have to try to do something. We have to pull together as a community and try to see if we can, um, you know, stamp down this this whole violence. If you have you are if you want you man have a fight, then keep your own yard. Carry come yourself. So anyway, we had a um, community meeting. We announced it. We invited everybody to come, and um, we had a very good turnout. I would estimate around maybe 50, 60 people came to that first meeting. And then we discuss, we chat, we go back and forth and so on and so forth. So then somebody said, well, we're not going to decide anything right here, sir, because you know, we really don't know where to turn and what to do. So let us appoint a committee to um, investigate and come up with um, solutions or proposals and so on. So anyway, so six of us were chosen, be included. And then um, that committee um, had a couple of meetings and then we came back with um, a few suggestions and things. And that six formed the nucleus of um, the beginning of GFA. Um, the names are on record. I can't remember them now off on the head, but all the names are on record. Um, for, 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 for historical accuracy, I was like the ringleader, the initiator, the everything. So basically when they hit Kukambakawasha, right. <laughs> um, but I needed company, so I just kind of dragged people in with me and dragged them along. But um, after things got going, I styled myself as the general secretary because when there were no president and no um, what, what, what. So I just said general secretary because I did everything. Um, so basically that's, that's how it started. And then of course we had a huge media campaign coming mm. out of that too. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, before I invite others to kind of join and ask questions, for me, what's very interesting is how almost similarly to how like the Stonewall riots and the Stonewall Inn as a yes kind of, you know, kick-started things in, yes. you know, the U.S., um, the closet kind of kick-started things here right. in Jamaica. I didn't get, I've never heard that piece of it, and how pivotal, you know, things at the closet kind of like, uh, was to the starting of GFM. So that's really interesting to know. Yeah, the like, major difference, I, though, was that with Stonewall, the violence and thing was external. Right. Yes. With the closet, the violence was internal. Okay. So that's when we recognize we have a real problem within the community. Mm. Okay. All right. So my fellow panel, my fellow host, over to y'all. I'm gonna take it over with the excitement. <laughs> Question, Larry. I mean, I know it, it is Marie when they wish part of the because the months of time the name come up and from the Instagram <laughs> fish team. The aim was to have to get Larry Chang, we'll have to talk to Larry Chang, some of them, some of them. I don't know if it is English, but I think. Um, 
But I, I, I just want to say what's already said that I'm grateful that you're here and grateful to be able to have this conversation with you. Um, I do want to, you know, talk more personally about you though, and like I guess coming into the the awareness of your sexuality. What was that journey like for you? Um, especially navigating it around that time. What was it like? I don't know if there's anything was different back then, but like you know, you have the title of being like the first out publicly out Jamaican person. So like. I don't know. I, to me, already just hearing that, that felt heavy. So what was that like for you? Um, you know, coming to that awareness and then having that. Yeah, a lot of mercy. It's a long story. And I'm actually working on my memoirs. Yes. Um, but, you know, it's difficult. It, I've been doing it for several years and I don't even reach part two. Anyway, um, it started when I was a child. I can um, clearly remember that when I was, um, before I was even four years old, and I know it's before four because I went to school, to um, kindergarten school when I was four, and all of this happened before that. So I know it, it was before four. Uh, so I knew I was different. I knew that I was um, drawn. I can't use the word attracted because I mean, a four-year-old don't know about attracted. Um, or anything sexual, but I was drawn to, to, to guys um, and much older guys. I wasn't interested in anybody my age. I was interested in, um, you know, men who had passed puberty. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, so I knew from a very early age um, that I was different. I had no word for it. I don't know what the hell it was. Um, I was different. And no matter how I was teased or um, bullied or called names, or that was just who I was. And you know, there's nothing I could, or anybody else could do about it. So I grew up in um, Brownstone. It's a small um, country town in St. Anne. Well, it's not so small, but at that time it was even smaller. And um, I was completely isolated because I didn't know another soul who was like me. Although in hindsight and um, a later experience, it turned out that um, my best friend at the time um, was gay. But of course, you know, at six, seven, eight years old, you don't know nothing about sex or gay or attraction or any of those things. But we just knew that you know, we liked each other. We were friends because we were we had similar outlooks, um, and so on. So, so you know, he was my best friend in school, and then years later, we met up in California, which is where I went to college. And he was by then in the U.S. Air Force at uh, um, Air Base in in California, but in a different part. And one weekend, he had the weekend off and he came down to see me in Oakland. And we were there chit-chatting, chit-chatting. And of course I had come out to him and um, he immediately started, oh my God, I'm so sorry to hear that, da, 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 da. And I said, cut the crap, what are you talking about? You are just like me. And he broke down and cried. And so from that day, we, we got even closer. And um, 
nothing sexually between us. We were just very good friends. We grew up together, went to church together, sang in the choir together, went to the same school, you know, all of that. Um, yeah, so it, it's a long history. <laughs> While in um, California, I was uh, exposed. I don't know if I told you this already, if I'm repeating myself, but I was exposed to um, three radical movements which were just then getting off the ground um, in Berkeley, California, around the University of Berkeley campus, which is um, the Black Power Movement, which started in Oakland, which is where I lived. Um, I actually um, heard Huey Newton and all of the other Black Panthers speak. I used to go to um, meetings and see them. Um, I also attended a lot of Gay Liberation Front meetings, which were also going on at that time. And then, of course, there was Women's Sleep happening all at the same time. So I, I was completely radicalized. So that by the time I graduated and went back to um, came back to Jamaica, I made a contract with myself that I was going to live by my own um, lights. I was not going to hide. I was not going to dissemble. Um, I was just going to live who I was. And whoever don't like it can lump it. So that's the background to um, you know what gave me the inspiration and the courage to to um, to begin GFM because you know it would be the only condition that under which I would live in Jamaica if there was some kind of movement that tried to improve the situation. So it, it's basically it's purely out of self interest. Believe me, I did not do this out of altruism. I did it for myself, yeah? But for me, that is the best motivation you can have. If you can do something for yourself and it benefits other people, then all the better. So, um, so trying to keep on that train, I'm doing a follow-up question. Mm -hmm. um, to keep on that train of like, you know, you and you know, your experience as a queer person back then, um, so coming back to Jamaica now, we started GFM. I'm, I'm always interested in kind of how that affects the other parts of one's life. So not, not, I'm not necessarily focusing on experiences of violence and discrimination, although you can talk about that. I want mm -hmm. to know like your love life or in the community. What was that like living in Jamaica? Know that you would have started this thing um, back then. Well, um, I was in Kingston because I moved to Kingston because um, my profession, um, Kingston offered the only job opportunities for my profession. So it, it made, it forced me to, to, to live in Kingston because you know, I, there was no point in going back to Brownstone. Um, so it was a, a, about a year or two I was in Kingston. I was slowly meeting people um, and, you know, finding my way around. Because, um, first of all, I didn't know Kingston at all. I'm a country boy. And, you know, we only came to Kingston once in a while and was just for the day to do shopping and, or, you know, whatever, and go back to country. So I... Kingston was a, a foreign place for me. I didn't know it. So it took me a while to find my way around and get to know people and so on and so forth. Um, and so my options, you know, for dating or 
even having sex with it were, was very scarce. And then plus, I was, um, there were always these barriers, as you know, in Jamaica, there are social barriers, yes? And being a middle-class Chinese Batman, especially in those days, cut me off from, you know, a lot of things that other people would take for granted, yeah? Um, I mean, any one of you could just walk down the street, cruise and, and make contact and, you know, something can happen. That was not possible for me um, because of this social distance. This was social distancing long before COVID. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, so, but, you know, once in a while I would hook up with somebody. Um, and uh, at that time, there was no place to meet people. Um, there may have been pickup points as um, there always have been, but um, I'm not a street person really. So that would have been difficult for me. So the only way I could meet people was through, um, you know, reference. I would meet somebody and they would introduce me to somebody else and, and so it would go. But that's a very slow way to expand your circle of acquaintance, yeah? But eventually it happened because um, there were have always been gatherings, you know, parties, especially pay parties uh, and those kinds of things. So, you know, once I, I discovered those, then I would go and that's how I would meet more people. So, um, it was a fairly active social life. Um, one of the places that um, me and a couple of other friends, newly made friends would hang out was the, um, the Junkanoo Lounge at the Sheraton Hotel in New Kingston. I think Sheraton is still there, I'm not sure. Um, okay, I think it may be changed to Wyndham or something, I don't remember. Um, but it was then a Sheraton Hotel right in New Kingston and the bar there was called the Junkanoo Lounge. Um, Miko Blanco, who you may have heard of, used to do limbo there. And so, um, you know, a lot of tourists would come and a lot of gay men would go uh, because it was, you know, a hangout spot. So yeah, those kinds of things um, would go on. Much later, much later. Okay, all right. <laughs> and just, just to deal with it, I, in in my time in Jamaica, I've I've been through five boyfriends. That's oh, people that who come through. <laughs> that, 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 that is to to say that some a relationship that lasts longer than six months, I consider a boyfriend. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Right, just just in case that question wasn't clear. <laughs> I mean, right, I, and to give you more detail, in, in the, even though they didn't ask me, they were all black Jamaicans except one who was Guyanese. Okay. <laughs> okay. Come <through>. all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm I'm so I'm so stoked to be having this conversation with you, Larry. Um, you know, like I learned I learned about um the history of queer activism in Jamaica. Um, a couple years ago, at was it was was a prison event? I think maybe like three years ago. Um, and I was like super stoked ever since. Like I wanted to meet all of you who I could meet. Um, but I'm I'm actually interested in the other side of that same question. You know, like I can imagine, even though you were so motivated, um, radicalized as you call it, um, to 
to embark on this journey of um, activism. I can't, I can't imagine what it was like um, in that time in Jamaica. I've only heard stories um, mm. about it. So I'm interested in what was the landscape like um, that you had to navigate and the feelings that you had to navigate even though you were so motivated to do this. Okay. Um, I first have to kind of set the context in the sense that there was and always has been homophobia, but because of general ignorance, let me put it that way, people really didn't know what gay was. They didn't know what homosexuality was because since the days before, um, something like the Shan Cable and all of that, which now gives people the full picture. They know exactly <laughs> what we are. But in those days, people were naive, yeah? So, I mean, they knew the term Batiman and they knew kind of, well, they had a very limited view of what Batiman was. Um, and so that's basically, on the, the, that's the basis they operated on. Um, they also be, didn't believe that it existed in Jamaica. They also didn't believe that, um, you know, their own Jamaican black people, you know, were like this. Occasionally, you would see a headline in the star. The star has always been a scandal sheet. Um, two men arrested for buggery. Those were the headlines. But then you see, those kind of language don't really bring it home to you exactly who these men were and what they were doing. Yeah. So it was just a kind of vague legal um, terminology thing that, okay, uh, whatever. Yeah, it was just something. And even myself growing up, when I would see those headlines in, in this The Glean or The Star, I never associated it with me or anything that I was or did. You know, this was just something, you know, weird and strange and, you know, not, not normal. <laughs> so that was the kind of atmosphere that existed, you know, when I began. Um, but of course, as time went on and we got more media exposure and there was this um, whole media explosion through satellite and um, later on the internet, then um, and cable television, then people you know really got a good picture of it. And this is why I think that um, later on people became more virulently homophobic and violent. And because they weren't as violent as that in the early days, of course we were still afraid. Um, you know, because um, in the, the early days the violence would probably take this. Uh, form of stoning that would be about the um, the extent of it, but the the beating up and the stabbing and the thing that came much later. But yes, I was very personally afraid. Um, although in those days I could walk freely downtown, um, sometimes there might be somebody who call out something, but that would be the extent of it. Um, I had one boyfriend, actually the first Jamaican boyfriend I had, who came from Tivoli Gardens. And um, I used to go down there with him, yeah? 
So that just to give you an idea that how much more relatively, relatively safe it was in those days. I wouldn't do that today. <laughs> well, that's, that's super interesting. Because <laughs> here, here I was thinking that, you know, we, we have more, more freedom of expression today. True. So that's a, that's a very interesting perspective. But, you know, the thing is, it's that very freedom of expression that gives us exposure. Because more people know known more now. And so that increased exposure, the higher profile, if you will, um, you know, attracts more, more, more opposition. Yeah. So it's one of those things. Comes with the territory. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. So let me jump in here, but I know the facts say, did he take a look at bad man? I have put that in the notes. But <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. You see, you have made an assumption, dear. <laughs> Stereotype. He was not a, He come from bad man, please. But he was not a bad man. He was actually a dancer within DTC. Okay. Fair. Fair. <laughs> yeah. Also, anybody listening thinks it was statement problematic. I come from Rooster, y'all tr don't try it with me. And it was a joke. But um, my question is to talk to me about um, the kind of work of GFN as it was uh, back then. And, and the fact, I, I know it ended somewhere in the 80s, and you can probably talk to us about right. why it ended when it um, ended as well. So just, you know, okay. a little overview. All right, well, first of all, there was no model, no pattern to follow. We had to make it up as we went along. So we just did what we could. Everything was voluntary. We had no resources. I mean, you know, out of our pockets, we would buy stationery and um, paper and whatever was needed. Because our campaign, if you want to call it that, um, was basically letter writing, letters to the editors of the Gleaner and um, the Herald was a paper at that time, and um, the, the Jamaica Daily News. So the Daily News is what we patterned our paper off of. We had a newsletter that came out um, monthly and then sometimes twice a month if there was exciting news that we had to share and some sometimes even more often as it was as needed but it was basically a monthly newsletter and we copied the um jamaica daily news masthead and then we just change it d to a g and call it jamaica daily news and we used to produce this on um in those days, it was typewriter. So we had to type everything on stencils. You guys probably don't even know what a stencil is. <laughs> and then this stencil had to be wrapped on this um, Gestetner printer. Um, it was called a duplicator. And you wrap this stencil around the duplicator and then you have to ink it and put paper in the, um, the hopper. And then you have to turn this handle. And so that was how the early copies of um, 
daily news were produced. And sometimes we didn't have access to typewriter. We didn't have access to um, duplicator. And so one of our um, stalwart um, foundation members, St. Hope Thomas, used to work at GIS at the time. So he would often produce Gailey News out of GIS office. Yes, using government supplies and paper. <laughs> so we, we found that just so very, you know, exciting and um, what is the word I want? Anyway, whatever, yeah. <laughs> we got a hoot out of that. Yeah, sorry, Kareem, you were saying something? No, I just said, which is right. We're using, we're using government supplies. Yeah, it's our supplies. <laughs> yeah, so um, that was one, the, the major, a major project was the, um, the Gailey News as well as the letter writing. Oh, and the Gailey News was sent all over the world. We had exchange subscriptions with um, um, gay organizations right around the world. And this was why GFM was um, early off the mark when it came to um, information about AIDS because AIDS was just coming out in 1980, 79, whatever. And we were getting all the latest information long before government got it. So when government realized that, um, because we had already set up a, um, a STD clinic yeah, it was called STD in those days, not STI. Um, um, sexually transmitted disease. So we had this clinic going and we would um, treat people for gonorrhea and syphilis. Those were the two main STDs at the time. And so when this whole AIDS thing, which they didn't even know what it was in the beginning, um, started to come up, we already had a kind of structure to deal with this because we held um, weekly clinics where anybody would come and um, we would take their blood and no names would be used. Um, each, we used a number system where the specimens were just tagged with a number. And um, then of course we would know who the number is, but the, the thing would, would just numbered before it was sent to the lab. Now, where was our lab? Our lab was um, at the university hospital because again, we had a um, leading member who was a lab technologist at University of the West Indies Hospital. So he would just take them into the lab and all the, 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 the tests would be done there. And then we would get the results and then you know we would contact the people and let them know what their results were. If they were um, positive, then we have our own circle of doctors, both gay and straight, because we had doctors who were allies at the time. Yeah? Both gay and straight. We had nursing staff who were gay. We had lab technicians who were, so we had a whole infrastructure. So that by the time this AIDS thing showed its head, you know, we, we had that infrastructure that we could um, begin to cope with it, not that there was any kind of um, cure or treatment available at that time, but at the same time, at least we would know that, um, you know, we were able to address it. And then out of all of that activity grew 
um, do just, just grew out of all of that activity because of um, Joseph Robinson and um, Howard Daly, who started giving um, home care in their own apartment at the time they were living in Ocean Towers, yeah? So, you know, everything is connected. But um, the other thing that I find very interesting and um, I could take pride in is that because of our information flow from all of these organizations around the world, um, oh, the, the Gay Men's um, Health Action Committee in New York, which was one of the earliest um, groups to um, try to address AIDS, we were in direct touch with them. So that any kind of information they had, they would feed it to us. So we were ahead of the game as far, as, far as that went. And so once the, the Ministry of Health um, got knowledge that, you know, what we were doing, then they, they made overtures to us. Now remember, we are an illegal underground organization and they reached out to us, um, especially Dr. Figueroa, I have to really um, give him huge credit for that. He was the head, um, I don't know what he is, but he's the head epidemiologist. And so, you know, we worked very closely with him and the Ministry of Health in terms of trying to come up you know, with, with um, interventions and treatment and, and care. Um, so at that time, particularly proud of. Um, let's see, with other programs that we had were, um, we used to visit uh, people in prison because of our letter writing campaign we would always sign it, the freedom movement, and put the postal address. And so these guys in prison, and in fact, I think there was one case of a, a female in Fort Augusta, um, they would write to us and say, well, you know, I, I, I'm like that, and, you know, I'm here in prison, and, you know, here is, it's hell for the other prisoners, but it's worse hell for us, because if people find out that we are so, then they victimize us and attack us and blah, 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 blah. So we would go to, to visit them in prison um, in response to their writing. And of course we would take things for them like toothpaste and soap and deodorant and them kind of something. Um, and, and food, snacks, you know, because you know, in prison life is very dread. So um, we would try to do what we can. And that program became very successful um, in terms that I no longer had to go myself, you know, um, I was able to delegate that and we had a whole team of people who would do that. Just like how we had a whole team of speakers because in the beginning, I was the only person who would go out and speak publicly. Um, in time, we developed a team around me. And then at one point, I didn't have to go anymore because you know we had this very effective um, public speaking team. We went to... Um, and gave presentations to the Nurses Association, to the Psychological Association, anybody who was open to it, because you can imagine that most people wouldn't even want to get near us. But um, any organization that was open to it, we would accept the invitation and we would go and, uh, and speak to them. So that was, I, I think, was a, a very um, effective, yeah. We, 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 we spoke on campus, both, um, UE and um, UTEC. At the time, it wasn't UTEC, it was CAST. 
what's it? Um, yeah, so we had meetings with students there and um, we had outreach to Montego Bay because after all, um, Kingston is not Jamaica. So we had meetings in Montego Bay, in Ochi. Um, I think that was it. I don't think we got to Mandeville. Maybe some people did. I, I, I don't know. I don't know everything. I wasn't everywhere. <laughs> Let me see. Were there any other programs? Um, oh, um, Jim, Gay Youth Movement was a program that we had. Yeah, Gay Youth Movement, G-Y-M, Jim. And that, we found a need for um, organized activities for um, the gay youth because you know, a gay youth wouldn't be going to bars and clubs and, and that kind of thing. So um, these are mostly daytime activities like we would plan beach outings, um, netball match, um, you know, those kinds of things. Um, we would arrange film shows. We would get hold of a, um, a film with some kind of gay content and we would show that. And, um, and of course, all of this is free, yeah? But of course, we were welcome contributions. We didn't get very much, but you know, everybody come a couple. And um, that was when we would lean on the, the wealthier individuals in the community. And I don't want to say we blackmail them because <laughs> we could easily have said, look, if you, don't, you, if you don't give us some money, we're going to expose you. No, no we never did that. <laughs> Although it was very tempting. <laughs> Because really, um, we did not get a lot of support from all of the old sport then. They would prefer to keep their distance and go on like they don't know us and, um, you know, all of that. So um, the support was not very forthcoming. So we had to struggle. We always had to struggle because of lack of funds. And it's not like you guys know, you are lucky. You can uh, write proposals and submit, <laughs> you know, um, subventions and the grant and other. those things didn't exist in those days. And plus we were not organized to operate at that level. Um, we were just a bunch of guys, you know, who met, and a few girls who, um, you know, met in each other's houses and, you know, discussed what, what we're going to do next, yeah or how we can respond to certain situations. Can I just say though, because you said y'all was not that organized and I, I'm sorry, you know, my respect, but I forgot push buttons that very assertion. <laughs> y'all were doing so much. Like I did not know, because right. I heard, I know about the clinic. Um, um, and it's kind of amazing for you to kind of make that link between, you know, the operations of the clinic leading to like the formations of just like kind of felt like they were connected, but mm -hmm. I've never heard that formal connection made before. But then to kind of to see that then that kind of kickstarts the national HIV response. No, essentially, mm -hmm. you know, yes. it, was, it was this local LGBT movement that prepared the government to respond to HIV. Yes, exactly. No, and I think that's a critical part of our history. That would have yes. acknowledge, and I go work on so that everywhere now. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, but the fact that you all did so much, had a youth movement, um, was were doing all of this work, had daily youth operating. I mean, it might not be a whole. Oh, we are organized as a registered entity, no. But that 
that that shows my level of organization and the fact that you were able to however you were able to fund that because as you rightfully said we have grants that we write for now but you were literally working on your own resources and networks to get that and that is amazing um big up on yourself because and, and it was all volunteer nobody was paid because there was no money to pay anybody <laughs> Big up on yourself. Can me try to wonder how you keep your 95 and then you find time for all of that? Well, I was lucky because I was my own boss. I had my own yeah. business. So, you know. Yeah. But damn. And on. plus, I, I, a lot of that time, I did not have a job. I was not working because it was at the height of democratic socialism. And the economy took a downturn. A lot of businesses closed. Um, I was working in an architectural firm at the time and I was laid off because, you know, business was so bad. Um, so that was all into to it too, yeah. Mm. Uh, there was a point I was going to make. Um, oh, in the early days of HIV in Jamaica, the majority of cases were heterosexual. Oh. Yes. The gay community had very low incidence, and um, we attributed that to the fact that we were promoting condoms from before, even for um, STDs and gonorrhea, promoting condoms, and also the, the, the education of our community to say, well, look, you know, this can be risky behavior, and so therefore, just be very careful. And so. I, I think that is what really, um, you know, prevented a lot of um, people from, from contracting it. Of course, everything broke out, you know, shortly after that, because people don't always follow what is best. And um, obviously, we didn't reach everybody either, so. Oh, so I'm curious. So. I know, you know, you left Jamaica and then I feel like after that, things kind of declined thereafter. So I guess what, what I'd be interested in hearing was what was the reason for you leaving um, when you did? Okay, be before we get to my leaving, okay. um, there, there was a long intervening period okay. when... Um, after democratic socialism, which is when we had our highest amount of activity because a lot of people were unemployed, they had time on their hands, they could do this, that, that. But democratic socialism created a, cli a political climate where um, the focus was more on people power and communities and self-help. And, and so therefore it was a perfect political climate for us to do what we were doing, yeah? Um, you know, it was politically correct and it just happened to coincide with the times. After Manly lost the election and Siaga came in and um, the economy started to pick up, then, you know, I, then I became employed again. And so therefore I had less time to devote to, um, to GFM. At about the same time or maybe before or a little after, I don't really remember what came first. Um, I was beginning to feel burnt out. So, uh, but I also felt that um, the visible head of a gay organization in Jamaica should not 
be tiny, should not look like me. And so therefore, um, I was particularly interested in somebody black taking over because then in the average Jamaican mind, a black person heading a gay organization in Jamaica would have more credibility right off the bat without him saying a word. <laughs> yeah, just as I look for him, then they will say, yeah, yeah, all right, I'm my brother this, yeah. Whereas they look for me and say, Chuck, Chinese, making go on, yeah? They would dismiss me. So from that political strategy, I decided to step back and um, we pushed St. Hope forward to take the leadership position. And he became the face of um, GFA. Of course, unfortunately, some of that, two, three years after that, you know, he passed from AIDS. Both him and his then lover, um, Milton Blake, and they were both very active in, in GFA. And so with the passing of both of them and, and other people too who were involved, then, you know, we had no, um, we had no personnel. We didn't have any soldiers. And so the activities just kind of shrunk until, you know, they stopped. And then by then, um, much later on, um, I had moved from that job. I started my own businesses and so on and so forth. Um, I don't know, this is like unofficial, but I'm sure you knew that I had a business on Waterloo Road. I was distributing Jamaican craft. And I suppose because they knew I was there, it became a safe place. And so after business hours, you know, lots of queens used to gather around there, um, especially since I had a member of staff, Donald, who had a lot of friends and they would just gather there after work and, you know, so on and so forth. Anyway, um, to cut a long story short, um, this Rasta couple who used to um, sell at the monthly market I used to hold there. I have a market called Alternative Market. And this Rasta couple were, were vendors. They would sell all kinds of red, green, and gold things and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, for whatever reason, I, I can tell you all that, but I don't want to make a long story. Um, they decided for ourselves that um, me and all the bottom and them around me, them feel dead and they feel burned out. And so they actually um, carried out their threat. One night they came and they, they set fire to one of the buildings. And, you know, I was becoming more and more afraid for my own personal safety because, you know, I've been threatened and my house had been stoned, my car had been vandalized, all kinds of things, yeah. Um, I had neighbors who would call police on me and, you know, it was a, a very difficult time. And that was when I decided to take a job in the country. And I moved to Martha Bray. I got a um, contract there to do work. I moved to Martha Bray in Trelawney. And even down there, people started to whisper, so, 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 and um, I got wind that they were going to come for me one night. So that was when I decided, um, I cannot live in Kingston. I can't live in the country because, you know, it's a small, Jamaica is a small place and people chat. Um, 
Then no see no woman come out your yard, so they immediately jump to conclusion. And whether they know for sure or not, they might come to you. And so when I heard that, um, that was when I decided to leave Jamaica. And so it took me a year to, to come back to Kingston and, and, you know, tie up all my affairs, um, put my house on the market, blah, blah, blah. And um, I, I went to the U.S. and, you know, applied for asylum. So I was in the U.S. for 13 years. Um, I didn't really get involved in any... Um, well, in the beginning I did because of my name and reputation then um, like Human Rights Watch and uh, Amnesty and organizations like that would contact me and invite me to participate in different um, presentations and demonstrations and things. So I did that for a while, but guess me what? The bad man Jamaican them, Ayad, would criticize me and say, who you think you is to represent with? You run with left with and you don't have no right to say you represent Jamaica. So I say, all right, me done, me tap, me shut my mouth. And from that, I never um, participated anymore. Um, but that's our Jamaican people for you. <laughs> wow. So, um, and this is, well, I want to my last question. Um, but uh, I was, so I guess I'm wondering, what do you think kind of accounted for that shift between when you guys originally started your work to, um, in terms of the shift in the culture and the attitudes? Because it seems like when you started, a lot of people didn't understand homosexuality, as you said, and so you could work, but you're saying by a certain time that kind of changed. Yes. And you became the face. And, and I just wanted to know what, and people became more violent and you had all these experiences. And I wanted to you know, what did you think accounted for that kind of shift in the culture? Well, I, I think the, 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 the propensity of violence was always there. I mean, Jamaica is a violent society, um, period. But I think that when the, um, the electronic media brought it in their face, that's when they really realized that, boy, we can't live with this. We can't make this go on in a free country. All them foreign something away, come here and come corrupt free people and, you know, all the, those kinds of arguments. Um, so I think that's what, um, that's basically what did it, yeah? That in-your-face thing, um, it just riled them up. And so, you know, there was no more constraint and no more thing because they, they know exactly what they're dealing with now. <coughs> okay. Yeah, I could see that. Um, I had a question though, in terms of while you were in the in the midst of the work and so on. Whenever I hear activists and advocates talk about their, I always think about like their inner circle or just their family members, especially LGBTQ activists. Um, I wanted to know like what was it? What were the responses from your family members and even some of your close friends um, as you decided to kind of take on this this mantle, if you will. Well, first of all, my family um, is a traditional Chinese family. They do not talk 
about certain things, especially emotions or anything like that. It's it's just part of um, that culture. And so I never had to vocalize anything, but they all knew what I was doing. Um, only except in the case of my mother who was living with me at the time. And then um, she decided she couldn't deal with it. So I offered to move out of the house, but obviously she couldn't live on her own. So she decided to move out and she went to live with one of my sisters. Um, that was the only real major um, negative response that I had. Um, the rest of my sisters, as I said, it was never vocalized, but they still supported me. They still loved me. And um, I, I actually came out to one of them. My elder sister had to live in Montegobi at the time. And she um, had to come in to Kingston to see a specialist at, um, at UWE. And so she would take this small plane from Mobile, fly in the evening before. So she would overnight with me. And then I would take her to the doctor the next day. So at the time, I was seeing the same dancer I was telling you about from Tivoli. And he used to live with me. And when he heard my sister was coming, he said, no, sir, I'm asking you. So he left and went and he slept somewhere else that night. But I deliberately left all of his things right where they were. I never moved that thing. All his clothes were hanging in the closet. At the time, Afro was still going on. So he had an Afro pick. I left it same place there on the bureau. Um, I left his toothbrush, everything in place. So obviously when my sister came, she said, somebody's staying with you. I said, yes. She said, who? I said, my boyfriend. That was how I came out to her. And she had this look on her face. And then after she calmed down, she said, well, you know, I, I think you should go and see a priest. I said, priest, which priest? If I go there, he will probably try to rape me, which has actually happened. Um, there was a high priest, high position priest in the Catholic church who came to my yard on the pretext that he wanted to discuss some youth program in his church. No sooner was he in the door, the man grabbed me and tried to hold me down. They said, what is this? <laughs> Anyway, so that was my response to my sister saying, no, sir, if, if I went to a priest, you know, he would probably try to, to, to do something with me. She said, well, then, okay, you need to see a doctor. I said, why doctor? Because I, I'm not sick. There's nothing wrong with me. And she said, I'm in a psychiatrist. You're, you're, something is not right in your head. I said, I said if I, it's not me that would need to go to the psychiatrist, it's you and all of the family. And I'm sure if I went to the psychiatrist, that is what he would say to me, bring your family. They are the ones who need to be treated. <laughs> so uh, that was that. Um, subsequently, she came back on a couple of visits. She met a few of my friends. Um, you know, and of course she grew to like them because, you know, we are all human beings and, you know. They're not going to do anything that's going to upset her or anything. And the same thing with my mother. My, my mother eventually came back to live with me. Um, met all of my Batiman friends there because I taught them all to play um, this Chinese game called Mahjong. Um, 
And so she was very impressed that here is this whole table of black people at Clear Marshall, yeah, and do it, doing it correctly. <laughs> so she was impressed. And in fact, she would even play with them. So, you know, I, I got along very well with my mother at, at the last part. In terms of um, straight friends and associates, um, I didn't feel the need to come out with them because, um, you know, it was public knowledge who I was and what I was doing. Um, at the time, because I was in the media, I was on, on TV, I was on the radio, I was in the newspaper. And so I remember this, um, this one time when I appeared on a television show. I can't remember what the name of the presenter was. Um, she was like the Oprah of, of Jamaica. I don't remember her name. Anyway, I was a guest on our program and um, JBC insisted on blanking out my face. I said, no, I don't, I don't need that. And they said, no, 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 for your own good, we are going to blank out your face. So they did that. So the program was broadcast with my face blanked out. Um, but of course, everybody who know me, know my voice. And after that show aired, I had a whole heap of um, straight friends, um, associates, people that I work with, who came to me. I heard you on TV. I saw you on TV. I said, oh, you know, it was me. I can't mistake your voice. So, yeah. And a lot of people, um, what is the word I would, empathize with me and say, no, you have to be very careful because uh, 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 boy, I don't know how you do that. Uh, uh, but, you know, it was just part of the job. <laughs> Uh, Emmy, have any questions before I ask my final one? Yes, I do. Um, so, Larry, you have you you have the um, perspective of being a pioneer in the movement as well as living through the movement to what it is today. Um, what are your What are your feelings about where Jamaica is at and where the movement is at, and um, what are some of the things that you'd like to see it happening? Okay, I like that question. Um, I was prepared to answer it, even if I wasn't asked it. Um, first of all, I have to um, put out a disclaimer that I really don't know what is happening now because I'm not there. Um, I get a few um, hints about what is happening from Facebook and you know, I kind of see some of the things that are happening, but I'm not there. So it, it's really hard for me to, to assess. But from the little that I know and that I see, I am extremely proud of all of you. Allah Uno, you are so bright and so dynamic and so full of life and self-confidence and, um, you know, in your face. I am here. That is what you are saying. And, you know, nothing could please me more than to hear this. Um, and to see how people go out in public, you know, that well, there was only one or two people who had the, the courage to do that in my time. Um, and there are anecdotes about that, I can tell you, but I don't know if we have time. Um, so, you know, you're doing great jobs. It, it's, and it's not for me to tell you what, what should be done more or what I would like to see, because you're all doing it. It's, you know, and um, you're doing what needs to be done. And I'm so happy about the different expressions, you know, that um, I gather that um, 
the women have their own groups and you know the trans people have their own thing and you know all of that so it's great that's all i can say kudos to all of you i mean okay sorry before before you go on i, I just need to get a um we weren't introduced, so I don't really know anything about Karima or M. So if you just give me a little thing, you know, to say who you are, where you are, what you're doing, you know, kind of thing, just so I can place you as, as a person and not just an image on a screen. Oh, absolutely. Um, so I grew up in Jamaica. I came up age in Jamaica, and I, I immigrated to the United States uh, in 2011. So I've been here a little bit over a decade, um, or just made a decade. Um, went to Rumors Boys School and everything. So I'm in the US. Mm -hmm. And what what are you doing? You you are talking about all your accomplishments. And oh yeah, things. right now, <laughs> right now I'm wrapping up my um, doctoral degree in public and nonprofit administration. Um, but I've been using that to really talk about LGBTQ issues. Um, and just larger social justice and social equity issues mm -hmm. um, within mm -hmm. public and nonprofit administration. Oh, great. Wonderful. Right now, I'm studying how LGBTQ organizations are funded um, as social justice organizations and how we need to do a better job of, of funding them, pretty much. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And do you plan to go back to Jamaica? Um, not necessarily, but okay. I've been traveling back and forth, not to live. Um, honestly, I have, like, you know, still have concerns around. Just, no, 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 I don't think I could dial this down and be back in I don't know. I don't know. I, but you you may be surprised, but anyway, I'll let Clint Roy that answer that. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'm happy to hear and glad to meet you and um, more power to you. Thank you. The pleasure is mine, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Glenn Roy, no, my turn. <laughs> <laughs> right, so um, I've, I'm born and raised in Jamaica, still live there, but I am in the United States now for school. Okay. Um, yes, I've, I've been here, I've been out of Jamaica for just over a year, um, and I do plan to go back. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm, I'm a new, I, I still consider myself to be a new um, newbie advocate, um, came into human rights advocacy under five years ago, then transitioned into environmental advocacy. So mm -hmm. my life right now is a mashup of human rights and environmental advocacy mm -hmm. um, that I'm trying to pretty much build out um, in my PhD research, looking at um, environmental justice considerations um, in indigenous communities. Okay, great. Well, I'm very happy to hear. Um, yes, I, I became involved in environmental activism too when I was living in um, Washington, D.C. Um, and so, yes, and but, you know, social justice and environmental justice are all very closely linked. Um, and so it, it's really different aspects of, of the same problem. So, yeah. But yeah, big up M, also M has, M is M also, you know, worked with us and did this amazing research with us while they were doing their PhD, looking at the impact of climate change on the community where- Oh, have, wonderful. Yeah, yeah so I make sure it looks nice and pretty before we put it up on the website and put out M also, right? And Madonna Tarif say, right? 
she can't come back with nails and all of this stuff with it. So I, I not, I not take her answer the podcast right now. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> um, but what I, uh, I, I did have one last question for you before you know we sign out, um, and that is, we know you kind of, you, you know, post GFM, you did, you were up, up, up among the group of persons that kickstarted JFLAG to be what it is today. Right. Um, and I just wanted to know, like. Um, what, where did that hype, where, so you, you talked about, you know, having burnout and all of, and, and those kinds of experiences, and you definitely wanted um, the movement to, to not be centered around your face. Um, so why did you come back? Uh, glad that we are that you did. Why did you kind of come back and, and, and start over things all over again? Well, um, several years um, passed before anything happened and it was the same Robert Cork who um, took the initiative to call a meeting and um, a couple of us went and there were about, I don't know, three or four meetings. Um, we had a workshop where we all participated and tried to um, come up with a description of what we wanted to see, what shape we wanted the thing to be in. And it was out of that workshop that came the structure of um, having co-directors, you know, with gender equity, um, and also to have um, different kinds of, um, in other words, we would try to share out the work so that we had different people doing different things and yeah, so actually it was, I think, more than one workshop. It was a series of workshops that we had. Um, and these were professionally conducted workshops. This wasn't just us doing our own thing. We had professional um, facilitators. And so that was the basic found work, uh, foundation of um, JFLAG, including the constitution, which we went, we wrote together and um, went over and over and through many different revisions and things. Um, and in JFLAG, because, you know, I'd had this long history and thing and I was burnt out, um, I chose not to take a leading role in that and basically took a back seat. I was referred to as the village elder. Um, so and they would kind of, you know, consult me on anything um, and ask my opinion and so on and so forth. So. Uh, my role there was supportive rather than um, you know, a leadership role. And besides, it was time for a new generation, you know. Why is that? Because I feel like, you know what, I'm not going to on podcast, but you know, it's good to hear that, you know, um, that you kind of have that mindset of full time, you know, so the new girls come up and of course and, and lead the change. That, that, you, that. I, I couldn't hug this stage the whole time, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I mean, I just want to say, I mean, in the same way, I you know, I when Javed did this series on the big because I feel like more directly because I kind of grew up, I, I grew up at a time when Javed was on the TV doing all of mm -hmm. the work um, and inspiring me to, to, mm -hmm. to know that Good. it's possible. I just want to say thank you so much for being that feisty, rambunctious person 
um, back in the 70s and kickstarting this amazing movement and, 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 and contributing over the years to it becoming what it is. You know, we named the Larry Chan Symposium in your honor. There's the Larry Chan Foundation. Much, and- much to my disapproval. <laughs> Yes, I I objected very strongly, but they wouldn't have it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, not have it neither. (laughs) Um, And there's also the Large Giant Foundation that provides support to members of our community um, who are displaced. And no, we are. I understand, you know, feeling like, you know, you do your part and, you know, let the others do it, but I don't think any of us um, would be here um, doing some of, some a lot of the same work that you did back then, which is both good and bad when you think about it, but still, if you hadn't put in that initial work, um, you are a, a, a legend in all the meanings of the word, of the word, for me in terms of activism and all of this work and and I stop saying him because people need to know all of the work that they put in. Um, yep. and, and GFM put in. So thank you, thank you so much for being willing to have this conversation with us and walk us through teaching new things um, that um, I never did know about, even though I hear some of the stories already, show me the connections. Um, really happy to have you. I'm not gonna listen back to the episode, even though I get epi- edit the episode because I need to hear all of this goodness all over again. So thank you so much. Okay, can I just say one more thing? Um, yes, the only thing that would make me feel better about using my name for that foundation, I think, is I don't know if you know this, but there was a proposal that was professionally written. I don't remember who. Um, in the beginning to set up the Larry Chan Center. If you are not aware of it, try to find it. And uh, because it is a brilliant proposal in my um, estimation. It is a proposal basically to help the, the Gully use. That was what it was directed at first. And it is a holistic proposal in the sense that it dealt with mind, body and spirit in terms of not just giving them shelter and you know housing and food and what 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 but also giving them counseling and training for an employable skill oh well actually so i've not seen that proposal but you'll be i'm going to say this to you since you're here you know always go into the details of j5's business but we actually um were able to secure funding um last year to do all of that. So oh, wonderful. Yes, yeah, so over the last, um, so one of our staff members now is actually seconded to the center. Um, oh. So we've secured, so three of the persons there, we've secured schooling for them. Um, and she has regular empowerment sessions with members of the team, connecting them to services and stuff like that. So the funding we secured is enough to kind of give the, the program the kind of structure and expand it so more persons can benefit from it. And we're putting more like infrastructure things, expanding like what they have there and so on. So that work is being done. I still would like to see what's in that proposal to see um, how it can be tweaked and added to what we're doing already. But yeah, we were able to provide you know a good amount of money to turn it into all of that. So the employability mm-hmm. skills are there. The, the, the mental health support is there and all of that. So 
Oh, yeah. wonderful. I, I'm gratified to hear that. I don't feel so bad now. If you want to uh, find a proposal, check with Dane. Mm -hmm. um, it was between Dane and Yvonne Sobers who shared it with me. So um, they should have access to it. Yeah, we'll do. We'll do. But thank you again. Um, when I wrote, when I wrote up my one, I could come back and be that side. I'll make a phone call. That's okay. I'll gladly jump in. Um, I mean, I won't belabor the point, but Larry, much, much, much gratitude to you for paving the way for, you know, as they were saying, girls like us and for the younger generation to really run because you guys have been beating that pavement and really, um, you know, making the path clear for us. Uh, I hope that whatever you do after this, beyond this will be um, as gracious and kind and as wonderful as you have been um, and as selfless, as much as you thought it was selfish, as selfless as you have been um, over the years and as generous as you have been over the years. To the listeners, thank you so much for your, um, you know, your loyalty and whatever, to the Fish Tea Podcast. Uh, we always love having you. We always love hearing from you and interacting with you. So please reach out to us on any um, social media platform using Fish Tea Podcast or send us an email at fishteapodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your ideas for upcoming episodes or who you'd love to see on the episode or just things that you, you think we could do to make episodes um and the seasons better um for the upcoming oh we'll, you're your from before christmas so i can save all that holiday stuff for the next episode but as per usual we're still in the pandaroma so please 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 wash your hands social distance wear your mask get the local juke as there and right with us please may just get my booster shot right there yet. um you know and as Mother Glenroy would always warn us, wipe it down before you put it in your mouth. <laughs> 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 and as always, stay sophisticated. Bye. Bye. Okay, bye. <laughs>